This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis 34, we'll be looking today at the entire chapter. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say to me. Give me the young woman as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young men did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son, 
Every male was circumcised and all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. And I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, we recognize this is a difficult text, for it exposes the depth and pervasiveness of sin, even that sin that remains among your people, even the dangers that we, your people, face as we live in a world of sin and rebellion against you. I pray that you would write your word on our hearts, that we would heed the warnings and the threatenings of this text, but also even that it would point us to the grace and to the hope of the gospel, for we have no other hope beyond your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Last week, we saw Jacob's reunion with his brother Esau as he returned to the land of Canaan. Now, from where we started with Jacob, we have seen over the last several chapters that much has changed for Jacob. He has learned and grown in various ways. We cannot deny that. But what we also saw last week, which prepares us for the text this week, is that Jacob had not fully arrived. He had not fully arrived spiritually, nor had he fully arrived physically. So what do I mean? Well, physically, Jacob was in the land of Canaan, but he stopped just short of his goal. Remember that he had initially covenanted with God at Bethel. And part of that covenant was that God would bring him back. He stopped at Shechem. He was probably only about a day's journey from Bethel, and yet he stays in Shechem. He buys land there. He seems to set up a permanent camp there. So he was in the land. He was close, and yet it seems he stopped just short of the ultimate goal. Now, it's not that Jacob necessarily was wrong for living where he did, but there is at a minimum some symbolism in play here. He's not quite where he's supposed to be. He's close, but he's a little bit too close for comfort to the pagan Canaanites. And then spiritually, Jacob has not arrived yet because 
We saw last time some of Jacob's lingering sins and their effects. First, we saw that Jacob continued to play favorites in his family. He is most of all interested in the good of Rachel, his most beloved wife, and her son Joseph, but he is far less interested in the children of Leah, which the most of his children were Leah's children, and he was even less interested in the children of the maidservants. And then we also saw that Jacob, after everything that had happened, still engaged in a bit of duplicity and deception and treachery with Esau. He seemingly parted from Esau under the impression that he was going to follow him to Seir and they would dwell together in peace and proximity. But instead he turned aside and went to Canaan, which is where God commanded him to go. And he should have gone where God commanded him, but he was not forthright with Esau about it. Now maybe some of this was still from fear and distrust and lingering doubts about Esau's intentions, but at any rate, Jacob reminds us that even the most sanctified of us in this life have not arrived. We continue to wrestle with sin and its effects our whole time on this earth. Well, this combination of both physical and spiritual non-arrival bring us to our text today. Now, at the outset, no, we are going to be talking about some brutal and difficult and graphic realities in the family of God, in our family history, the history of God's covenant people. I will be treating them as tastefully as I can, but just be prepared. We are dealing with some difficult subjects today. Particularly, we're going to be dealing with how Jacob's non-arrival creates a disastrous situation for his family, and particularly his children. Jacob will actually seemingly be quiet and absent for most of this text, but that is exactly the problem. Jacob's passivity and weakness, coupled with his favoritism, leaves most of his children to look after themselves with some disastrous and horrific results. Now, I also want to say at the outset, we have seen this before as we've worked through the book of Genesis and other texts, but this is another one of those texts where there's no good guys. There's no heroes. If you are looking for a moral example in this text, you are not going to find it. What you see is something we have seen before. Even among the people of God, these seem to be awful people doing awful things. We see the most heinous of sins even within the city of God. This is not a text to show us an example of how to live. Rather, it is a text showing the depth of depravity that can even come among God's own people. So with these ideas in the background, we will look at this crisis in the covenant family today in three points. First, there is a problem in verses 1 through 4. We have Jacob's laxity and various other factors leading to one of the Canaanites committing a horrendous act against his family. And then second, we see passivity in verses 5 through 12. Jacob seems less than inclined to actually do anything about this thing that happens. And then third, we see punishment 
in verses 13 through 31. Without fatherly help and guidance, Jacob's sons resort to wrath and treachery with catastrophic results. So problem, passivity, and punishment, those are our points for this morning. First, we see a problem in verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, we are reintroduced to a member of Jacob's family that we had not heard anything about since her birth. That is, his daughter Dinah, daughter by his wife Leah. In the previous passages that dealt with the birth of Jacob's children, she was the only daughter whose birth was recorded. We don't know if she was the only daughter that was born, but she is the only one named, likely in anticipation of the account that was coming here in chapter 34. Now, it's important to note that Dinah is a daughter of Jacob by Leah in light of what we've already seen regarding Jacob's favoritism between his wives and children. Despite the fact that Leah had the first and the most children for Jacob, Jacob is still much more interested and invested in Rachel and her only son, Joseph. We saw this in that reunion with Esau. The children were sent in reverse order of how much Jacob regarded them. In a situation where possible life and death were on the table, he had no qualms using the children of the maidservants and of Leah, essentially as human shields for Rachel and Joseph. The others would get taken out first so that Rachel and Joseph could ultimately escape if Esau came with ill intentions. Now, given that all of you here today are the children of someone, imagine if there were this kind of favoritism in your family. Or maybe there was, and you've experienced things like this. Because often in families, parents do play favorites with the children. And the result is that the non-favorites often turn bitter and resentful and rebellious. Now, this was not a new problem, in the family of God. Jacob and Esau themselves were products of this. Jacob was his mother's favorite. Esau was Isaac's favorite. And a lot of the earlier conflict and treachery between them arose out of that. But Jacob doesn't seem to have learned the lesson that that should have taught him. What this favoritism does. And he himself engages in it. And he will even continue to engage in it after this episode. We see the consequences of this favoritism working out at the beginning of this chapter, starting in the first verse. We read that Dinah goes out to see the daughters of the land. What does this mean? Well, they dwell near Shechem, this city. There is life and activity going on there, and it seems that Dinah, as a young woman, is curious to go see it. This is not an entirely abnormal impulse. As children grow up, they want to go and see and understand and experience the world. However, the good and proper way for children to know and understand the world is to do so under the godly and watchful influence of their families, particularly their parents. What can happen when a naive young woman goes off into the big scary world not knowing what dangers are there and what to expect? The answer is awful and horrible things 
like those we are about to see. Dinah has made a grievous error in stealing away to go see the life of the Canaanites. She shouldn't be there. She has no business doing this. But the grievous errors behind that are those of her family. The fact that no one in her family, and particularly not her father, is interested in her whereabouts enough to keep her safe, to keep her from harm. Jacob is probably too busy spoiling Rachel and Joseph to be concerned with what Leah and her many children are up to. This is a failing as a father. This is a failing as a leader of God's people. Nothing good would come from Dinah's unsupervised excursions to the city. Again, she shouldn't have gone there. She had no business being there. But also those responsible for her should not have allowed her to be there in the first place. And her being there brings disastrous and grievously evil results. Verse 2, we learn of this Shechem, the son of Hamor, the prince of the country. His name is the same name as the city. In other words, this is his city. He's a ruler. He's royalty. He's the nobility. He's not the typical one who you would expect to commit such a crime, such an evil described in this text. But what this does show us is the great corruption and wickedness among the Canaanites. This is why God's people, even in the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were not to mingle with the Canaanites. They were to limit their association with them. The Canaanites were pagans. They did not fear God, and their lack of fear of God was reflected in the perverse morality that was often displayed in their cities and lands. We saw this earlier with Lot and his ordeal in Sodom, and we see it again now. Everyone from the king, from the prince on down in Shechem, is wicked and evil and corrupt and perverse. For this prince of the people sees Dinah on one of her trips to the city, and he does the unthinkable. He takes her and violates her. Never underestimate the heavy cost that can come with merely being in the wrong place at the wrong time or being just outside of the lines, just being a little bit off into somewhere you know you're not supposed to be. See, we're all often inclined to do that, and we always think, oh, it'll be fine. I'll get away with it. But what if you don't? What if worst comes to worst? What if the unthinkable thing happens. Now, it would be bad enough if such a thing happened today, even in our world of frequent and normalized sexual licentiousness. But this is the ancient world. This was a culture of honor and shame. And chastity was held at a premium. This was a pure act of brutish violence and lack of restraint and perversion by Shechem. He wanted, like a beast, like an animal, he took. Shechem did a horrible evil. He should have been punished. He should have died for what he did. This was a sin that even the pagans should have noticed the evil of. But he's the prince. 
just as there's a lack of parental oversight and accountability on the side of the city of God in this text, so too with the city of man. For not only is Shechem not punished for this evil he commits, he has the audacity to go demand that his father Hamor go get him the girl as a wife. Now we see next in the text that his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah. And he loved her and spoke kindly to her. Now what's really going on here and what's really motivating this is hard to tell. It would be hard to deny that given how he first exploits and abuses Dinah, there was at least some motivation by his base and evil and lustful desires. Is this seemingly nicer behavior afterwards motivated by guilt or by some kind of sincere concern. But either way, the point is moot, because the city of God is not to intermarry with the city of man. And Shechem betrays that he is a particularly wicked example from the city of man. He's driven by his lusts to defile a woman and to, as a leader of the people, hide his corruption and even demand his father get the woman for him as a wife. It would be bad enough to marry one of the daughters of Israel to a Canaanite, but this Canaanite was of a particular low. So we have our problem, a horrible problem born out of sin at many levels by many people. But now we come to our second point, passivity in verses 5 through 12. So how does Jacob respond to this news? Well, we learn in verse 5 that he heard about it but we don't actually see any particular response from him. He's there, he's around, but he just seems like he's letting it happen. Everything's just kind of passing him by. At the end of verse 5, we see that Jacob doesn't speak. He held his peace until his sons, Dinah's brothers, Leah's other sons, came in from the field. In fact, we're not actually going to see Jacob say anything until after this whole ordeal was over at the very end of the chapter. What Jacob is demonstrating here and will throughout the rest of this chapter is an unacceptable and cowardly passivity towards his children in this situation they're now in. He cannot be bothered to act. In fact, it seems he cannot even be bothered to speak. Now, admittedly, I'm not a father, I haven't had to live or walk in this situation, but I could imagine from what I understand of fathers and fatherhood that if I had children and somebody did something like this to one of them, I would I would like to think, I would hope that I would not just sit quietly by and say nothing. I would imagine those of you who are fathers would feel the same. But in verse 6, Hamor comes to Jacob to speak on behalf of his son to try to arrange this marriage between Shechem and Dinah. Now again, we don't see recorded that Jacob actually says or does anything. He's just sort of missing in action. He's physically there, but not really engaging, not doing anything about this crisis that has gripped his family. But where Jacob is unwilling to act, his sons are furious. They come in from the fields where they were tending the animals, and they are very angry, as they should be. 
as Jacob should be and would be if he were properly discharging his fatherly duty of care for all his children and not just his favorites. Even Moses writing here in Genesis uses very strong language to describe this defilement. It was disgraceful. It was a thing which ought not be done. Everyone knew it. Even the pagan Canaanites would have known it. But Hamor comes and makes this proposal. Now he proposes not only marrying Dinah to Shechem, but a broader marriage pact that those of the house of Israel and those of the land of Shechem ought to be free to intermarry. Not only that, but they would dwell together in the same land. They would trade together. What Hamar was essentially proposing was a merger of the two peoples into one, not only settling this matter of Dinah, but in broader relations. Again, the Israelites and the Canaanites of Shechem, they had essentially become one in the same people. Of course, this cannot happen for many reasons. Most fundamentally, the Canaanites were not worshipers of God. Now, if they sincerely believed and sincerely wanted to become worshipers of God, they could have. And in fact, that very sort of thing is what will be exploited by Jacob's sons. But that doesn't seem to be what's really on the table here. And the people of Israel already knew, although it was not explicitly codified for us to see until the Mosaic Law, that they were not to intermarry with the peoples of the land, the idolaters and the pagans. This is why Abraham sought a wife for Isaac from among his family. This is why after Esau egregiously married two Canaanites, Isaac sent Jacob to get a wife from the east as well. Though they were to dwell in the land, they were not to be like the people of the land or intermarry with them. Because God willed to dispossess and judge the people of that land for their sin and rebellion against him. It could be traced all the way back to the sin of Ham after the flood. Remember that Canaan, from where they got their name, was Ham's son. So this proposal of merging the peoples should have been a non-starter. And yet we don't see Jacob saying or doing anything to this effect. He should have said no, but we don't see that he says anything. Then Shechem himself speaks, offering to give them whatever dowry or gift they wanted. They could name their own price so that Dinah could be his wife. Now, given that Shechem was a prince, that his was the royal family, he could have certainly delivered on that promise. But again, there's not a word from Jacob in any of this. What we do have instead, though, is a response from Jacob's son. In lieu of Jacob doing anything, they take matters into their own hands. And this brings us to our final point, punishment, in verses 13 through 31. So the sons of Jacob make a proposal. It is a treacherous proposal. It is not a sincerely, met, a sincerely meant proposal. But they set a condition by which the Shechemites can have what they've proposed. So they are aware of the division between their peoples. They know that there are terms by which they can be overcome. Those outside the people of Israel can become worshipers of God. They can turn from their idols. They can follow and serve Yahweh. 
Of course, this would have to be signified by the giving of the covenant sign of circumcision to all the males. So in other words, they are basically proposing that the Shechemites become Israelites. And this could have happened. Of course, again, it is not being proposed sincerely. The Shechemites were visibly willing to do it. Of course, we find out later when it's pitched to the people, they're really just interested in the marriages and the economic benefits. They don't show any interest in actually worshiping God. But we do see in verse 18, the proposal pleased Hamor and Shechem. And they're the royalty, so they can actually make their people go along with this. Now we also get a note at the end of verse 19. It can vary based on your translation. The one I read said that Shechem was the most honorable. I don't think that's the best translation. I think it would be better rendered as he was the most honored or most respected. In other words, he's the prince. He's the boss. He's the one people are going to listen to. Even though his father still lives, Shechem is the de facto king. So if he commands all the people to undergo this conversion ritual, even the painful physical procedure to go along with it, it would happen. And it does happen. Hamor and Shechem, they come to the city gate because the city gate was where the city's business would be done. And they essentially decree this agreement they've struck with the house of Israel. They get free trade and free marriage. Again, they're interested in the temporal benefits. They show no actual interest in the worship of God. All they have to do is this inconvenient little procedure. And so they do it. Every male of the city was circumcised all at the same time. But then in verse 25, starting there, we see the treachery. Simeon and Levi, the second and third born sons of Jacob and Leah, go into the city full of men reeling from their wounds, and they kill all of them. All the men of the city, including Shechem and Hamor. Not just punishing the evildoer, but excessive wrath, murderous wrath, a rampage. They basically wipe the city out. They kill all the men. They take all the livestock and property. They even take the wives and the children captive as slaves. Now, it's not bad enough that their rage led them to commit this mass murder. That's horrible enough. But even worse, this was done under false pretenses that involved falsely invoking God's name and will even the profaning and defiling of his covenant sign. Basically, they used God as a tool, as a cover-up to deceive them and to commit this atrocity. So in addition to the mass murder, this was blasphemy. This was sacrilege against God and his worship. More sins being piled upon the more sins already so deeply stacked up in this ordeal. And it is only after all of this that we finally see Jacob speak, starting in verse 30, to his two sons. And what does he say when he finally opens his mouth, when all these horrible things have happened around him and in his family? He says, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. 
And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. Doesn't this seem like a bit of a strange response, given all that has happened? Betrays still more trouble, still more problems with Jacob's own priorities. Nowhere does Jacob express any outrage or concern about what was done to his daughter. Nowhere does he acknowledge the sacrilege or the blasphemy of God's name that was done by his sons or the murderous rampage that they went on. No, all Jacob talks about is himself and how what has happened here will make life harder and more dangerous for him. He does mention his household, but he almost addresses his sons as though they're not even a part of it. Jacob's fear and passivity and favoritism are, once again, his lingering sins and weaknesses. And not that they would have much moral authority left after what they have done, but his sons, in replying to him, do ask a valid question. Should he, Shechem, treat our sister like a harlot? Should she be treated like a a prostitute, like an immoral woman? So they're calling out Jacob's weakness and passivity as a father. Doesn't he care at all about what was done to his daughter and their sister? Does he even really care about them? From everything we've seen here, it doesn't really seem like he does. He only cares, he only speaks, he only seems angry because it caused a problem for him. Now, this sort of passivity, we can look at it and we can criticize it and we should, but it's not peculiar to Jacob. We are all prone, be it in our families or in any other aspect of life, to see and know and even participate in the wickedness around us and we justify it to ourselves or we think that we can can or should just stay out of it until we have to get involved. Our most natural human inclinations are to avoid conflict, to be passive, to live and let live. And yet there comes times as God's people where we cannot and should not and must not live and let live. Where was Jacob when his daughter was going wayward, putting herself in danger, opening herself and her family up to violence and shame? Friends, where are we when those of our families and those with us in the household of faith start to stray, when we see them walking the road to destruction? Where are we when our family, our friends, our loved ones turn aside to the licentiousness and perversion and the godlessness of this age? Do we say anything? Do we do anything? Do we try to stop them or do we just live and let live? Are we ourselves tempted by the spirit of the age? It's lies, it's lusts, thinking that we're watching at safe distance when disaster and sorrow are just around the corner and can break through at any moment. Where is the church when its members turn aside? 
Do we do church discipline as Scripture commands so that the peace and purity of the church be maintained? Sadly, it seems most of the church is inclined to shy away and to live and let live. Where was Jacob when his sons blasphemed God? Where are we when our God's name is drugged through the mud left and right in the world around us? When the mockers and the scoffers are everywhere, and yet most in the church retreat in fear and they cower and they hide because we don't want to offend them even though they're the enemies of God. We see things like, just a recent example, a satanic idol put up in a hall of government. When atheism is not only tolerated, but in many places demanded and enforced, where are we? Where was Jacob when his sons committed this great evil, this mass slaughter of a city? Where are we when those among us do great and public and egregious evils? Jacob failed miserably as a father and as a man of God, but we're often not as different from him as we like to believe. And yet, there is grace. Right after this, we'll get into this next time, God appears again to Jacob to call him back to himself, back to that place where God covenanted with him. And Jacob and his house, they will put their idols away. They will repent of their sins. They will serve God afresh and anew. And God will receive them by His grace. Similarly, we have come together again to this place where God meets us. And in His Word, He exposes our sins and our failings and how we early and often have fallen short of His glory and His will or we've stood idly by while others have done it. And though God comes as a terror to those who hate and mock and scorn Him, He comes in grace and peace to those who would repent of their sins and trust in Him. For by His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, God offers forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Wherever you may find yourself in this story, one who has turned aside from the way of truth, or one who has watched another turn aside from the way of truth, or one who has committed evil and treacherous sins, God's grace and mercy are sufficient for you. Now, this does not mean there's nothing practical to heed in the warnings of this passage. If you or yours are turning aside from the way of truth and life, stop. Return. Bring back the erring and wandering child. If you are misusing God's name and God's church and God's worship as a vehicle for your own agenda, stop. Return. Worship God in sincerity and the splendor of His holiness. If you are standing idly by while sin is consuming those around you and harming God's children, stop. Step in. Stand on the truth. Trust in God to help you and deliver you and be faithful to His Word. And know also that wherever you are in this story, 
God's grace is sufficient. If you come back tonight, we'll be looking at the last passage in the Gospel of John. We see how Jesus deals with Peter. Peter, who in the hour of trial, abandoned, forsook, denied Jesus three times. And we'll see Christ's grace being sufficient for Peter, just as it is sufficient to all of us. Because His grace is sufficient for all of us wherever we are in this story. So may we all live according to that grace. And then because of that grace, live more and more according to God's goodness and truth and righteousness. Let us pray. Father, we acknowledge that in Your Word, we see hard things, we see difficult things. Your Word is not only telling us of how Your saints of old have fallen so short of Your glory, but it is often a mirror to us, revealing to us our own sin, revealing to us our own passivity and how we are so often inclined to just live and let live as the world is going to hell around us. I pray, Father, that You would give us the strength and the courage and the peace and the indwelling power of Your Holy Spirit to live according to Your will. But most of all, Father, I pray that we would receive and rest upon Christ as He has offered in the Gospel, for apart from Him, we have no hope and we have no salvation from the depths of our sin. We pray this in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.